Let's pray together. Hello, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather and worship together with one another. Um, and before your word, we ask that you would speak to us now as we continue to contemplate it. May it transform our hearts uh, and shape us more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to sort of begin with a bit of a disclaimer and say that, uh, well, first of all, this passage, especially um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this poem at the center of the passage, is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, I love Isaiah 42 as well, um, so this was a lot of fun for me to, to reflect on these passages this week. But just by way of disclaimer, um, I do feel somewhat um, just, I guess, keenly aware of my own inadequacy in my ability to uh, capture the glory of this passage. And so uh, my, my, my greatest hope today is that I don't detract from it more than anything else. But as we look at this passage today, particularly looking at Colossians 1, um, I think it's worth reminding ourselves of the context of the letter. First, that Paul is writing this from prison. And secondly, um, that two of the main reasons that he's writing this letter is to encourage and ground these new Christians in their life of faith. As we saw last week, the first half of this chapter is all about orienting these new Christians to the country of God's salvation, um, orienting them to their new life in Christ, that they're part of the family of God, that they're people of faith, hope, and love, that they're called to live lives of generosity and generativity, that they're people whose minds are being transformed as they look to Jesus and learn to follow him that they're people who can endure hardships with both patience and joy because the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ, meets them in the midst of it and gives them hope for the future, that they're people of thanksgiving, and that they're people who have been set free, redeemed, and rescued. This is the landscape of the salvation that they've entered into. And now what Paul is doing in the second half of this opening chapter is saying that everything that you see in this new country of salvation, everything that you've been given, every good gift that you have, every aspect of this new life, all comes from Jesus. It's from him and through him and because of him and is held together in him. All of this is about Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of this new country, the cornerstone upon which it's built. He is the door that grants us entry into the new country of God's salvation. He is the sun that gives us light and heat. He is the food that sustains us in our life here. This is all about Jesus. Essentially, what Colossians is all about is the all-sufficiency of Jesus. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other Savior, no other Lord is needed. The fullness of salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the world's all in all. He is preeminent and supreme over all. And he is the only one who brings about the fullness of salvation. Salvation is found in Jesus. That's what Colossians is all about. Just keeps pointing to Jesus. And to help to get that truth to sink into the hearts of these people, Paul quotes this poem about Jesus in verses 15 through 20. But just to say, I don't think that this poem was written specifically for this letter. 
but that it was a poem that was well known to Paul and to other Christians at the time. And that was all about the supremacy and the centrality and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And that it was used as a way to teach new believers, uh, maybe even Paul himself, a significant Christian doctrine in a condensed and memorizable way, in the same way that song and poetry are today for us. And as we look at this poem, which I would invite as a how to bring up on the screen now, if he doesn't mind, um, I want you to notice a couple of things. And just so you know, I've broken this up into um, what scholars think is closer to the original format of the, of the poem itself. I'm following John Barclay's version here. Uh, Anti Wright has one that's broken up a little bit differently, but uh, basically um, the structure is, is agreed upon. And you'll notice a couple things. Uh, one, you'll notice that there's two halves to the poem. So you've got verses 15 and 16 on the top of the poem, and then 18 and 20 at the bottom. Sort of those are the two halves. And then you've got verses 17 and 18 in the middle as sort of a hinge section to the poem. You'll also notice that the, those two main halves deal with creation in the first half and then new creation or redemption in the second half. And the transition between the two happens in that middle section. And then third, I would just invite you to, to notice the completeness of God's rule in Jesus Christ, how often phrases like all things are repeated, or language like all of creation or everything and fullness. It's going out of its way to, to convey the totality and completeness of God's rule in Jesus Christ. And maybe one last thing I would make mention of is that this, um, this poem or this hymn of praise, maybe is another way to, to look at it, flows out of the thanksgiving that Paul has already been speaking about in verses 11 through 14, which is why I wanted us to read that at the beginning, that this part of the prayer of thanksgiving, and that this thanksgiving is all directed at Jesus. And then Paul is just shining this spotlight on who Jesus is in this passage. And so you can see it here. I'll read it just so you can hear it. I want you to hear these words again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So I just want you to notice that's sort of the transition that goes from creation to new creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I love that language of the pleasure of God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I want to suggest that one of the ways you could read Colossians is to see the first 14 verses of chapter 1 as laying the groundwork for this poem, and then the entire rest of the letter as almost an exposition of the poem itself, with Paul drawing out various implications of this poem in the lives of the Christians in Colossae, applying it to the particular things and situations that they're dealing with. And so we'll come back to this poem as the weeks go on. 
But just a couple things uh, to consider as we reflect upon this incredible poem today. And I, I just sort of want to whet your appetite here. I'm, I'm not, I can't be exhaustive with this, but just a couple of things. First is, I want you to see that it states that Jesus is both the source and the summit of creation. It says that all things were created by him and through him and for him. All things find their start and their end in him, their existence and their purpose, their beginning and their goal, their telos. From start to finish, creation is by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. He is the source of all creation. Creation begins in him and is moving towards him. That's the first thing I want you to think about. Secondly, not only does it say that creation has its start and its finish in Jesus, but it, in him all things hold together. He gives integrity and coherence to the cosmos. There's purpose in creation, in and through Jesus. We're not just floating around aimlessly in space. Jesus gives both integrity and coherence to the cosmos as a whole, but he also gives integrity and coherence to our lives as well. Our lives have integrity and coherence, meaning and purpose in and through Jesus. Third, Jesus is preeminent over all, surpassing the glory of everything else. I just want you to take a moment and think about that. Is that true in your life? Do you believe that the glory of Jesus surpasses everything else? Fourth, that Jesus is the fullness of God, the complete image of God, that when we look at Jesus, we see God. Again, just take a moment to reflect on that. Think about both how radical a statement that is to say that this man who was born in Bethlehem and raised in Galilee, that he is the complete and full image of God, that God took pleasure in the fullness of his image dwelling in him. And then think about how that was expressed. Think about Jesus' life and his ministry, his love, his compassion, how he was moved by compassion when he saw people in pain. His grace, his tears, his anger, his tenderness. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In all those moments, we are seeing God's image on display for us. Just take a moment and reflect upon that. Lastly, this poem says that Jesus has reconciled and restored all things through his blood on the cross. That means that salvation is complete and whole and fully accomplished for all people, all people, all of creation, the entire cosmos in and through Jesus. 
As we'll see in verse 23, that salvation is not forced upon anyone and requires our free choice to follow Jesus. We had a, an incredible discussion um, based upon Philip Yancey's book this past week in our book study about God's restraint, not forcing his love upon anyone, not even um, destroying all evil for us as, as an act of his love, but exercising restraint so that we could freely choose to follow him. But that in no way diminishes the scope and the power and the fullness of God's saving work in Jesus. Through Jesus's blood on the cross, he reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's an incredible statement. There is so much that could be said about this poem, and my hope for today is not to try to exhaust it um, or explain it, uh, you know, in an explanation, as if I could exhaust it, but simply just to point out a couple of things and to encourage you to meditate and reflect on this poem yourself. I've actually included a PDF copy. You could take it down now, Zahao, if you don't mind. But I've actually included a PDF copy of the poem in this format uh, to our service email today. And I would encourage you to print it out, to mark it up, to explore it, um, to see the connections and the parallels and the symmetry of this incredible poem, but more than anything else, to memorize it, to internalize it, to let it seep into your imaginations and your hearts, just as Paul, I think, intended for it to do in the lives of the Colossians as well. for it to become a lens by which we see the world. I wonder if this was something that Paul had memorized. It was something that just came to light in this moment that he knew he needed to share this with this group of believers. That we would internalize this poem so much that when we're struggling with various challenges in our lives, this poem would then be a source of strength and encouragement for us something that lifts our eyes to Jesus and enables us to see the centrality and the sovereignty and the all-sufficiency of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That as we're struggling with this pandemic, it would be something that buoys us and encourages us and strengthens us. Perhaps you're feeling exhausted by the ongoing nature of this pandemic. Well, how can this poem give you strength and courage as you face it? If you're feeling weighed down by the restrictions and the government sanctions that have been put in place, how can this poem give you hope and a renewed focus? If you're feeling disillusioned or discouraged by everything that's going on in the world, by racial injustice, climate change, geopolitical conflicts, how can this poem give you perspective and hope? If you're feeling disjointed and fragmented, and disoriented in a time like this, how can this poem help give you a sense of peace and coherence and clarity? Whatever it is that we're struggling with, either now or in the future, how can this poem, which is full of rich and robust Christian doctrine, how can it shape our imaginations and our hearts in such a way to give us the vision that we need to follow Jesus in the particular challenges that we face in this life. 
my encouragement to all of us is to commit to memorizing this poem and to see how God uses it to shape our own lives. The other thing that I would encourage you to think about this week um, and that I was thinking about this week were some of the tensions that we see in our passages today. The Colossians passage has this incredible portrayal of, of Jesus as the cosmic Christ, the one who is sovereign over all creation. All creation was created by him and through him and for him. It's this grand vision of God's cosmic glory in Jesus. And then the Isaiah passage speaks of the Messiah coming to execute justice for the nations. Verse 1 says he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 4 says he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So he will remain steadfast and focused in his pursuit and what he's called to. But between those two verses, it speaks of the gentleness and tenderness of how the Messiah pursues justice. It says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the street. He won't be brash and loud and overly forceful. Verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Those are some of my favorite verses about Messiah. He will, he will come in such tenderness that in his pursuit of justice, that these fragile things, this bruised reed and these, this faintly burning wick, will not be damaged or extinguished. It's this incredible passage about the faithfulness and the tenderness of Jesus. But there's a fascinating juxtaposition there between these passages of this cosmic Christ in whom one in whom all of creation was created by and through and for, and this gentle, tender Messiah who comes to save us and to execute justice on the earth. There's another fascinating tension in verses 21 to 23 of Colossians 1. In verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1, Paul brings the concept of God's cosmic saving work in Jesus down to a very personal level. And he says that the peace that Jesus has accomplished on the cross pertains to you personally. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus has reconciled you by his death. He is the one who presents you. He places you before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. Salvation in these verses is entirely the work of God in Jesus, full stop. But then verse 23 goes on and says, if. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not, sh not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, what is it? Is salvation the work of God that has been accomplished in Jesus, or is it dependent upon me being steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel? The answer is, is both in a certain sense. That salvation has been accomplished in and through Jesus. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to accomplish this, this salvation. It is entirely the gift of God given to us by grace through faith in Jesus, full stop. But that gift of God is not forced upon anyone and must be freely chosen and freely lived out of our own volition. 
So, so salvation is accomplished by Jesus, not by our own faithful living, but that salvation is entered into or made manifest in our lives by freely, faithfully, humbly, stumblingly following Jesus. But there's a tension there. And I mention all of this because I happened to read an interesting article this week that was saying that the uniqueness of Anglicanism isn't that it contains seemingly contradictory parts, but that it's both Catholic and Reformed, sacramental and evangelical, etc. It's not something that those uh, seeming contradiction, contradictions coexist together. The uniqueness of Anglicanism, this article was saying, is the new and fruitful thing that is produced from the tension between those seeming contradictions. Now, whether or not you agree with the, the statement about Anglicanism per se uh, doesn't matter to me. The reason why I mention it here is because I find that general concept fascinating, that tensions aren't merely to be seen as the coexistence of contradictions, but the fertile soil from which something new and dynamic can be born. And so it's not just that the Messiah is both cosmically supreme and tenderly faithful. It's that as we see these two characteristics of Jesus on display and held in tension with one another, we're actually gaining a greater vision and insight of who Jesus is. As we think about the tension of the fullness of God's saving work in Jesus and our responsibility to following him, we gain a greater insight into the life of faith that is not mere passivity, so doing nothing, nor is it ceaseless striving that ends in exhaustion. Instead, it's fullness of life lived by the grace of God. And I think it's worth thinking about this concept of tensions and seeming contradictions as fertile soil for God's work in our lives, because we're all made up of a bunch of seeming contradic contradictions, aren't we? We're all saints and sinners. We're all people of both faith and doubt, hope and pessimism, courage and fear, love and unholy anger sometimes. We're complicated people. And it's actually in those tensions, in our very complicatedness, that Jesus works in our lives, bringing about newness of life and transformation. Those tensions can actually be the fertile soil where God is making us new creations in Christ. We don't deny them. We don't try to pretend like they don't exist. We bring the fullness of who we are before God, and he can transform us. So I think part of the, the invitation of these passages, at least for me this week, is to try to have eyes to see the fullness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created. They are made by him and through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of his body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That he is supreme and preeminent over all. That in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and that through his death on the cross, all things in heaven and on earth have been reconciled to God. I want to have eyes to see that vision of Jesus. And I also want to be courageous enough 
to bring the fullness of who I am, all the contradictions, all the tensions, all that I truly am, I want to bring that before God. And for those two things to meet, and for in that meeting, for that to be the fertile soil where something new is brought to life, where new creation comes to life through Jesus. So that's my encouragement to us uh, this week, to take time to memorize this poem, to allow it to seep in, to internalize it as much as possible, that it would shape the way we see the world and the way that we face the challenges that we have to deal with. And then we would also be honest about ourselves and bring the fullness of who we are, our struggles, our contradictions, our fears, our hopes, all of these things to the fullness of who God is in Christ. Allow those two things to meet and for God's new creation in us to take shape. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.